I feel like this is going to be a common starting point, but uh, shall we begin with a when we last saw our heroes? <laughs> when we last saw our heroes. <laughs> oh my goodness. So uh, we're still early enough in the phases of this that I feel like I need to provide a little bit of background because the plan as we're recording this is to have the first two campaign diary episodes out, one from each of our campaigns, Stephen's Curse of Strahd campaign and my own Adventurers Assemble campaign. Uh, and this is the second episode of that. So at the very least, I would encourage going back and listening to the first Adventurers Assemble episode. If not both, they were both an immense amount of fun to record, and you can follow both my campaign and Steven's going forward here. And this, of course, is episode two of Adventurers Assemble. The title of the session is the title of the module that I was pulling from and references the villain for this level one party. We are about to continue with Shrine of the Emperor of Bones. Oh, yeah. Dead guys. And very much so. And I believe you mentioned last time because I sent you the stat block for him, I think, before I even ran session one. And you pointed out just how terrifying he is for a level the, one party. He's a problem. That was That's a big problem monster. Not one that I would think a party of first level adventurers would be able to handle, but... You know, as a DM, very often on the fly, you're modifying monsters when you discover that they are way nastier than you thought they would be, or you're modifying them because they're not nasty enough. In the words of Matthew Colville, encounter balance doesn't stop once you've rolled initiative. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you have, we were down a member of the party as a result of Ada, our half-elf artificer, being bitten by a venom crawler hatchling in the third chamber of the shrine. Uh, dropped to zero hit points in a single hit because uh, she failed one. the saving throw, which meant the poison went through at full damage. Level one artificer with nine hit points. Yep. Yep. Level that's, one. That's how man. we got here. The thing is, like later in the campaign, those hatchlings are nowhere near as terrifying. Oh, no. I mean, I mean they can still potentially. Oh, they're a problem because there's yeah. usually a lot more than just one. Uh huh. Yeah. They yeah. can inflict poison damage and they can. Yeah, they're. In much higher numbers later on. That said, I think this first group was just like three of them, and they did get dispatched, <laughs> but not before also uh, getting one hit in on the party. We ended session one realizing, okay, we're going to have to figure this out quickly before we can go back into the shrine. And me as a DM realizing, oh, that's a situation that I hadn't accounted for, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I should have a good plan for it as we come back to the table. And I feel like I do maybe a little bit more between session communication with the group. I mean, I think there's always like some one-on-one between a DM and their players kind of assessing, hey, just a question about this ability or something you're fine-tuning, especially like if you've recently made level and you're just trying to make sure that you both have an understanding of how different things work. At level up, for sure. Yeah. There's a lot of, at least when I DM, there's a lot of... Mm -hmm. Uh, interplayer or player and me communication yeah but you definitely communicate with your party on a higher rate and And, level than i do (laughs) and it's just in an effort to and then this was the one of the first times i did it because i just realized okay there's a few different ways this can look depending on how the party prioritizes their time so i wanted to get a sense of okay do you want to get ada seen off to safety immediately and then turn back around and head back into the shrine and let backup come in with you later do you want to go and get that backup do you want to go and get the backup and leave time for a long rest and those were the options they were presented with given they knew there were still three children missing within the shrine 
they wanted to get back in there quickly, but they also didn't want to miss the conversations they'd have with potential new allies. So they went with the middle option. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. The way this session also ended up working was Siv, the elven fighter, was going to take Ada to go get help uh, after being pointed in the direction of a certain magic shop by Thestro, the human wizard that we met during the first session. I'm going to pause very quickly for a moment to just... uh, because I realize there's one thing I left out of the previous episode that could provide a little bit of explanation for at least how a couple of players got here. Because again, I felt so bad in the after the first session again, killing Megan's character on accident, and that was only the second anything RPG I had ever played with Megan in person. Uh, the first was actually at an event uh, back in early enough in 2020 that uh, we had not locked down yet. Uh, it was an event called All Things Con out in the Georgetown Plaza. Yeah, I was supposed to come to that, and I couldn't because life happens. Life with two kids, you know, what do you, well, I or only, one I at the time. Even, <laughs> I only had one then, but still. Yes, <laughs> and, and I, I was running a Fate Core just explainer yeah, session. That's right. Two of the people that ended up showing up were Megan and Larissa. And I got to play a Legion of Superheroes one-shot with them where they both made their own superheroes. And then I was playing Timberwolf, which was a whole lot of fun because he's unlike any other character that I've played for any real length of time. Cool. That was the realization of, hey, I'd like to play many more sessions of things with these two and then trying to figure out what that would look like later. And then you killed one in the first (laughs) session. Way to go. (laughs) Also, to this point, in the only session for which... uh, uh, Megan was actually physically at the table. She oh. was there for session one, then moved, and she's been playing remotely ever since and has been an absolute pro with it as we've been going. It's been wonderful. I've seen a lot of session one deaths, though, like in all honesty. <laughs> my favorite one, I'm going to derail you for a second. My You're favorite good. one was I was playing with a group of fraternity brothers and someone got one shot by a statue of Orcus. Oh, gee. Yeah. Big, like, 18-foot-tall statue lobbed a beer barrel, a full beer barrel, don't remember how that happened and it one shot one of the players and this dm always started as a level three and it one shot a level three cleric goodness and that was the very first round of combat so you can imagine how the rest of that combat went it was <laughs> bad take down the healer in it was for, very oh bad gosh. he got he got a full beer barrel dropped on him it was funny. It just needs to have Acme written on the side. I mean, that's where that is at, at least in my brain at that point. Acme IPA. Yep. First session deaths. Yes. That, they happen. And, and first sessions, bringing us back to where we were with this one, I realized to what extent, okay, completely different mentality here, especially for me, because the first session was, okay, I really hope this works well. Okay, session two, it's in the books. We know we can do this. Let's build this scenario, figure out the different ways this could go, and let's rock and roll. So Siv is going to go get help from Ada at this magic shop, and we'll have more on how that is going in a moment. The other side of it is we still have Gorg, our Azamar Barbarian. We have Nareen, our Tiefling Sorcerer, and Delilah, our Rabbit Folk Rogue, probably in need of some backup if they're going to go back into the shrine. And so Thestro offers to make introductions with a pair of adventurers who could not be more different from each other if they possibly tried. The first... Adventurer they encountered was at a nearby temple to Lathander, or the the Morning Lord, if I'm recalling my lore correctly here, uh, just south of the old abandoned keep and the shrine beneath. As they entered the temple, they found it uh, to be 
a great contrast to all the other surroundings in Murktown. Uh, actually a pretty pleasant place, very clean, lots of white stonework, a lot of old buildings that have been well-maintained, a beautiful fountain in the center. And sitting on a floating golden disc in the center of that fountain, they see a woman with long blonde hair uh, wearing white temple acolyte robes, as well as a golden diadem in her hair. And this is Rilo, a paladin of Lathander. He must be a king. <laughs> well, why do you say that? Well, because he doesn't have all over him. <laughs> right there, you can sum up Murktown and the temple. Yeah, that's fair. That that works way, way better than it should. And again, contrast oh, Rilo man. with the rest of the environment. So she was the second character I built as far as the allies are concerned. Because I realized, okay... One of these allies is just going to be Erase Jagger, right Spike. My, <laughs> my level one character from your campaign is now in this campaign with just maybe one additional weapon and a different name. It's okay. Then I realized, okay, we've got two rogues. That's a lot of speed. And both martial classes. Let's counter that and... Basically, by the time I was done with Rilo, as a level one paladin, she had an AC of 19. Very doable. Yeah. Paladin, oh, yeah. I'm telling you, paladins are one of the most broken classes in 5th edition, and I love playing a paladin mm -hmm. because you're you're able to dole out it at higher levels just so much damage, but you also have like a stupidly broken AC. Like It's very, very possible to get your AC up to 25 almost. Yeah. And then you also have this massive well of hit points. Paladins are this, they're a great class. Especially if you've got somebody who wants to switch from playing martial classes to a spellcaster, but needs something in the middle. Because you get some of the spells as a paladin, but you're also still predominantly a martial class. It's mm -hmm. kind of a weird, just kind of this weird middle road. Yeah. And, well, it's the half spellcaster. Yeah. The half spellcaster. It's a half spellcaster, spell spell sort of. And you, there's ways to build paladins so they're even more spell heavy or less spell heavy. As there is with every class, there's a lot of room as you level up. But paladins can get broken really fast, even mm -hmm. at level one. And. Having Rilo in the group for this session gave me an opportunity to kind of drive in some contrast because Spike is a knife for hire who doesn't have much use for just all of the temple's haughtiness and morality and doesn't see much purpose in it. And then to Rilo, Spike is scum <laughs> and she doesn't want to be anywhere near him and has and has reasonably good reasons not to trust him as the party continues to find out as we go forward. So those are the two that they encounter. They meet Rilo at her temple. They, of course, meet Spike at the docks. And after brief interactions with both of them, they're going to meet back at the shrine and descend back in to try to retrieve the Emperor of Bones' ritual book for Thestro, as that is what he has been after this whole time. They also need to rescue the three remaining lost kids, and that is their goal. Meanwhile. Oh, boy. Yes. The way this ended up playing out, if I'm recalling correctly, our player for Civ was not at the table. I was quickly going through just, okay, she's going off and handling this. There's really not going to be any new information I could present to the players until Ada wakes up. Because then at that point, someone at the table is actually experiencing what is going on around them. Right. You, however, get to the benefit of seeing both sides of this. So after getting a very fast horse from the temple, Siv took Ada to a magic shop on the opposite side of the city uh, called the Ruby Moon. She meets uh, a middle-aged proprietor 
uh, named Dolhov. Visually, I based him off of Anthony Head, probably circa his time <laughs> in Buffy. Okay, fair. And uh, he is, of course, a magic shop proprietor. Giles. Yes, uh, <laughs> Such a great character. And he is more than willing to help, and he uses this weird chess set of sorts to open a portal in a mirror that leads into a mirror image of his magic shop. But this is actually another location in a completely different city. So the Ruby Moon has a counterpart in a completely other spot in the region, and Siv is going to go meet someone who can heal Ada, and that person is Orner Weros. She's told a few things about Weros right out of the gate. He's inherently a very suspicious person. There's going to be a few checkpoints and clearances that they're going to have to make sure that they say the right thing to the right person to even get to him. Uh, they're going to have to make sure that they go to a certain spot, a certain meeting point, and then from there, someone in Weros's orbit will guide Siv to him. And so all of that happens. Siv encounters uh, a young man named Gorvet Icefell, uh, dark hair, uh, definitely kind of keeping to the shadows in Orbea, and it's got a lot of very uh, tall mesas that kind of can black out the sun in different parts of the city, and it's, plus it's also nighttime. So he's just keeping to himself and keeping a watch as Siv gets to the point where she can advance to meet up with Weros. Yeah, I do have to ask yes. right now, who did you envision playing Weros? Because my brain went straight to the client from the first season of uh, The Mandalorian. My connection there is Orn... Orn- Werner, Orner, Weros, Werner Hertz. Okay, I can see how you see, landed See, there you on go. That. That's where my brain went. Okay. Mine landed on, he is an old gnome. He's like over That's 300 and some change years old. <laughs> That's even better. But the voice I used and the demeanor I went with was the Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. Okay. So All right, that's kind cool. of like, especially like when he had, I think, a disguise where his hair is kind of long and if not white, <laughs> like maybe blonde, kind of pulled back. Yeah. Uh, these kind of elaborate sp- spectacles and just talking very quickly. And he is 17 steps ahead of you, regardless of what you're doing. I like it. So he is the person who's going to take care of Ada once she is brought in. So he is doing his work. And Ada comes to and discovers that probably from maybe like mid forearm down her right hand and that part of her arm is now covered with a magic item called the force gauntlet and has some properties that she can kind of shoot a small blast with it. Or I can't remember if that increased her carrying capacity because it was a precursor to the weapon she ended up getting as part of her subclass. So that ended up being kind of perfect. And what happens if you put magical gems in it? Can you erase half of all of existence? (laughs) Sorry. Uh, No, I mean, She's got the three runes in her arm already, and yes, I am contemplating homebrewing some additional ones, but uh, more on that later. I'm now rewarding Megan for listening to this podcast right? (laughs) at a later point, Uh, because yes, that stuff is already in the works. But she comes to, she's in the middle of this lab that's in this underground basement. There's tables and shelves all over the place with any number of trinkets and elixirs and different things that only Orner Weros knows the purpose or the layout of this space and there is a brief interaction where he explains uh how dangerous venom crawlers can be and that they are likely attracted to the types of places like murktown that are that have an immense subterranean structure that is not particularly clean and very close to the water type of place where they're going to build a nest 
And so you get some additional warning there. He also gives a couple of anti-venom elixirs after synthesizing his own to make sure that Ada is treated correctly. Over the course of their time, while Weros is working with Ada, Siv is talking to Gorved. And Gorved basically tells them, Weros is on the radar of some very bad people. Uh, There's everything from some races and clans of elves in the region uh, to some different political affiliations and gang affiliations. He knows how to do a lot of really interesting things, so there's a lot of people that want to get Weros working for them. And he does everything he can to stay off of all of their radars. Icefell tells Siv that Weros will be traveling in a couple of days to Knotside via airship. Ironically, Murktown is closer to Knotside than Orbea is, the city where they're having this conversation. But the party, thanks to that portal in the magic shop, has the ability, after they finish with the shrine, to later go to Orbea and then travel with Veros to the capital city of Knotside. And they will be paid handsomely for guarding him on that journey, basically making sure that he's going to be safe. And the reason Gorvet is approaching them with that is because Gorvet himself is going to be traveling separately to a different location for a different reason. I think I had it in my notes that like his sister was getting married on another continent. No one ever asked <laughs> about that note, so it went unused. <laughs> but anyway, this guy who's not going to be able to travel with Weros asks the party if they can. So that quest hook is now in the mix for later. Siv and Ada are going to head back. They end up using a different enchantment from a different shop to get back <laughs> to the Ruby Moon. Uh, because there's some sort of alarm that goes off in Weros's lab, and he quickly tells them both they need to leave. They need to go to a certain checkpoint. He and Gorvet are arguing about it. As he's doing that, Weros is like gathering important things and just says, I have to implode this laboratory. It's like you're getting the sense of, oh, okay, if bad people are coming for him, he has his contingency plans already in place. And before that goes any further, Gorvet, Siv, and Ada are gone. Siv and Ada are going to be heading back uh, to... Murktown, and I think they got there by way of a mirror in a closed dress shop. Uh, it ended up being how, how that worked out. Mirror travel. Yes. So much faster. <laughs> it is indeed. Especially when you're trying to quickly cover for the fact that one of your characters died in session one. Speaking of character deaths, let's get back to the shrine. So <laughs> the party has descended. Spike and Rilo are staying very clear from, of one another. Rilo is able to just straight up absorb a magic missile trap that went off and hit Delilah in the first session. Rilo gets her shield up, no problem there. They go down that hallway. They pass, uh, I think it's the body of a fallen tiefling who had attempted to explore uh, the shrine and is now just a corpse laying in the middle of that hallway. They continue on straight before they come to a turn and they see a very large, very locked stone doorway along with an archway opening up into another chamber. That other chamber is the main shrine room. (laughs) The shrine is not a big dungeon by any stretch. And upon arrival, they find themselves dealing with some skeletons, some additional skeletons that drop down from the ceiling and kind of come out of the walls that are clearly carved out of stone, which... On the board, didn't look any different to the players, so they felt very surrounded. To me, though, those stone ones were the minions with one hit point. So oh, okay. they're scarier to the party, but then functionally, right. they just one make hit, one that encounter minions. more dangerous. Yeah. One of the few things I missed from the days of 4th edition. And some things are fairly easy to carry over. Then they had to contend with 
the Emperor of Bones, who is this skeletal figure in a black robe about as stereotypical Grim Reaper type as you can imagine. And I believe he had already cast Minor Illusion. So it's not one Emperor of Bones that they see when they come in, but actually four. And they have to figure out which one they actually hit. I remember looking at the stat block and thinking, this is like a lich, but light. Mm-hmm. Very much nowhere so. near as terrifying as a lich because lich or even demi liches they're both just completely like you, to fight one of those you need a you need a full party of like level 15 mm-hmm. players so yeah, but it was like that it, it kind of struck me as this well it's not a lich but it functions very similarly and has some interestingly different powers but it's not a lich so nobody's getting their soul sucked out and no one's getting instantly disintegrated no. Or anything like that. No. There were plenty of challenges to be had, though, because, again, level one party. Oh, yeah. And I know Rilo was able to absorb some of the hits and keep the damage from getting too bad on any one player. You have a healer in the mix at that point. But neither Rilo nor Noreen has all that many spell slots. You also have to contend with level the fact ones. that, yeah, <laughs> or neither of the rogues can take disengage as a bonus action yet. Yeah, Cunning actions level, level two. One. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> level one's hard, man. Uh-huh. And the character who was able to deal out the most punishment once Larissa realized how damage vulnerability works and figures out, oh, Gorg has a great club. Uh, and these skeletons are vulnerable to bludgeoning damage. Yeah, there we go. And Gorg starts mowing them down. <laughs> go, barbarian, go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Although, and Larissa has talked about this, and thankfully we've played enough that I think things are finally maybe getting to the point where there's a much better average. It also doesn't help that I think Gorg is not min-maxed, but he's definitely... Basically, Gorg had not been optimized yet. We went back and fixed some of that, I think, when okay. the party reached level four. Yeah. So at this point, because Larissa talked about this, it was just so hard for him to hit anything when he was raging, which was crazy for whatever reason. It just seemed like whenever she was doing attacks out of rage, she'd hit. And then when she was doing attacks while raging, forget about it. Nothing to the be- nothing changes. No. It's like your attack rolls. <laughs> yeah. Nothing changes when you're raging. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if you take the right totem, I think you get bonuses when you're raging. So that, that makes no sense. But sometimes the dice can be very cruel. Yes. And the shrine was an incredibly difficult encounter. And I also was before, this was also one of those scenarios where I had not quite, I don't think I had processed that I had watched something from Matthew Colville and realized how much good content he has. Because I think one of the first videos I ever watched of him was talking about villain actions or layer actions or variations. There's different ways you can soup up some of your even low level enemies. And it's yeah. like, okay, let's make this encounter more interesting, a little more dynamic. I think, can't remember if it was after the second or third round of initiative, but suddenly a new figure enters the room, and it's after the Emperor of Bones has cast some sort of additional spell or effect, and that tiefling they saw in the corridor is now coming in as a zombie. That's just brilliant. Which is terrifying for a level one party. So they yep. have more and more enemies to contend with. The skeletons are largely going away. They finally figure out which emperor they can hit and still find purchase on. And it's... I don't think anyone dropped to zero, but it wasn't looking pretty. And finally, after all of that, was when Sivaneta finally returned with the way things had timed out. Uh, if they had uh, taken option one of just turning back around and going straight back into the shrine, not only would that have made it so okay, Rilo and Spike show up later, but it also 
would have pretty much eliminated any chance of 7 8 returning while the combat was still going. Instead, they get back and get a chance to have something to say about it. And <laughs> Megan makes the best entrance she could have possibly made. Ada comes in, takes out a crowbar, casts catapults, <laughs> and throws that crowbar at the Emperor of Bones, who is also vulnerable to bludgeoning damage. Yes. <laughs> so one hit with that spell completely pulverizes the boss. Perfect. And ends the combat. As the party went on, I think by the end of this session, everyone had a magic item. Noreen found this ring that allows her to cast cure wounds. I think ring called a ring of the black rock that I found online. Uh, so that was the item for our sorcerer. At this point, uh, Gorg had already won his gauntlets of flame in a, in a round of dice with the orcs at the loaded buckler. Delilah had found the swift rapier in the previous session. Ada now had the force gauntlet and Siv showed up wearing this red belt around her waist that she got as a gift from Gorbet Icefell uh, called the Belt of Battle, which gives her all sorts of different effects that are quite helpful for loads, combat. Loads of effects that are very helpful for combat. That's a, it's actually kind of a complicated magic item, but it's, it's very cool. Mm, yeah, no, that's one of those words like that's, yeah, that's useful at every single level of play. Will not go away because I think it gives her advantage on initiative rolls and then also can allow for additional movement reactions or actions depending on how many charges you spend. So, yeah, lots of fun there. They're not done with the shrine, though. They have not finished exploring it. Right, you said there was something about a locked door. Yes, there was. I hate locked doors. They doors end, are my number one worst enemy in D&D. They find a key on the body of the emperor. And they're going to go through and explore and figure out what they need to do. They also go deeper down at the tunnels, a tunnel chamber behind the shrine where they discover the three missing children. They are alive. Two of them are conscious. One of them is in not so wonderful shape, partially because uh, he sustained uh, an injury to his leg going through the water. There were like some kind of blade traps if you didn't navigate the, the water carefully as you were going through that chamber. So the party is successfully able to rescue the kids from there. But when they get back to the shrine room, Noreen realizes the key is no longer on her person that she got from the Emperor of Bones, and Spike is no longer around. That <laughs> jerk! <laughs> the rogue had gotten in. However, four out of the five party members, had, or plus Rilo, had gone to rescue the children. One party member hung back. And so once Spike had secured the ritual book from within the locked chamber, chamber eight, the final chamber of the dungeon... He turns around, and there's Sith. <laughs> <laughs> Rogue and fighter. Um, uh -huh. In a flat-out, no-holds-barred fight, I'm putting money on the fighter. Yes, so she hits him for a significant injury. Spike leaves behind the ritual book and runs. And after that, the party has the ritual book. They have the kids. They exit just as the chamber begins to fill with water and would have to be drained later there was a water trap in another chamber that they never encountered and that was me the dm just saying let's get out of here too sweet so they successfully escape the kids are returned to their parents one of whom is a blacksmith who will end up helping out the party much later garthon yep yeah. you met him yep i met him well i will meet him yes you will dear listener in the future <laughs> and then they give Thestro the ritual book in exchange for what they were paid. I think it ended up being like 200 gold pieces a piece, which for a 
of one party is insane, but just showing to what extent it's like, Vestro is a man of means in a position to pay others to do things that he would rather not do himself. <laughs> the party also picks up on, and I don't think I stated this explicitly, but they kind of realized, wait a minute, all of these kids who are coming out of the chamber don't remember why they went in there. And at the end of the last session, Thester said he recognized someone under the influence of a memory charm when he sees them. And they realized, oh, Thestro sent the kids in there to try to get the ritual book. <laughs> That's not cool. <laughs> so That jerk. Yeah. <laughs> so they almost were not going to let him leave. I'm looking at the stat block for a level 10 wizard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, instantly fries party. Start new campaign. Yeah. So... He turns invisible and disappears once he have the, has the ritual book. And the party has not leveled up yet. I will make this part quick, but this is kind of the, 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 the postscript of right. Session 2. The Emperor of Bones was defeated. They then <laughs> went back to the Ruby Moon, I think after they had gotten their rest. So back at full strength, still level 1. Uh, again, all the credit in the world to DM Dave because I was pulling from multiple campaign modules of his for all of this. Shrine of the Emperor of Bones with some elements of Spider's Ew because that's the setting, Murktown. Ew. Yeah. Uh, then Ornoreros came out of a module called Flight of the Predator. And then there was another level one module, which is why I wanted to make sure this happened. And then as soon as we got through it, I was going to level up the party called Animated Objects. And the premise is just you go into a magic shop and things that are moving and alive and capable of attacking you that shouldn't be <laughs> are everywhere. Ugh, so no. after dealing with the lich lights that was the Emperor of Bones, they then had to deal with a set of chairs, a particularly uh, angry bed. Animated broom <laughs> nearly killed the paladin, remember? <laughs> this was what was running through my head when you were describing that. And ultimately they were able to dispatch all of the various random objects that came alive that were making trouble for the party. They found Dolhov, the proprietor. I can't remember how specifically he was incapacitated because there's a lot of ways to be incapacitated in D&D, but basically on the bed and unable to do anything about it. And they were dealing with this swarm of coins that almost moved like, oh, no. yeah, some sort of golem creature. But... Once they got it destroyed, there was one particularly corrupted coin that had caused the whole swarm as well as caused everything else in that magic shop to come to life. And so the party would have to investigate what on earth was happening at the Ruby Moon when we got to our next session. And that is where we will pick up with episode three. There you go. Oh, my word. So a lot of ground covered <laughs> because I think, I don't know why, like inevitably, and this is one thing where I say this to any and all DMs. It is so easy to over-prepare. You will end up with so many things that you think, oh man, I need to have enough road out in front of the party that you don't even come close to getting to. And Because the shrine, which initially I thought, oh, this could be, they could probably knock this out in a session, ended up being two. And then I also had space to throw on another session at the end of it, but I also was not going to make them toil around uh, in level one any further. So they would also, after this particular session, they would begin session three at level two. There you go. Yeah, same deal. Going the first two with Strad, thinking that we could run Death House in one session, and we did not run Death House in one session. It was kind of 
Woof. But it's the same thing. It's really easy to overprepare. And in fact, honestly, better that you do because when you're underprepared, then you're uh, improvising and counter. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that wraps things up for this episode. We will pick up with our next episode with the third of my Adventurers Assemble sessions. And we will also continue to hear more and more about Stephen's sessions in Curse of Strahd. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts, especially if they play D&D. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the SB blog and past episodes at StorytellingBreakdown.com, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and reach out to our team at info at Storytelling-Breakdown.com. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church, with campaign diary logos provided by Michael Ganser and Jeremy Stroop. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been a Storytelling Breakdown Campaign Diary. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs> <laughs>